Well, here in Genesis 11 and 12, we've got the early account of, of Abraham, or Abraham. And we may think of Abraham and think, oh yeah, faith, you know, God spoke to him and he just got up and did it. But that's not the case at all. And I want to suggest that Abraham's early spiritual life had a pretty shaky beginning. And that really it was grace that brought him all the way through. And God counting him, really, as righteous right from the start. In chapter 12, verse 1, the translation is correct there in the King James. The Lord had said unto Abraham, Get out of your country, and from your kindred, and from your father's house, unto a land that I will show you. And that is emphasized in Acts 7, where we are told that God Almighty appeared to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees. So there was Abraham as a pretty young guy, you can work out, in, in Ur, surrounded by his country, his family, and his nation, and he's told to get up and, and leave all that. And does he do that? Well, it seems to me that no, he didn't. Because, just go back to chapter 11, from 27, we've got, or 26, we've got the uh, uh, genealogy there, that Tirah had three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And then we're told, verse 28, that Haran died before his father Tirah did. Now, I wonder if that is just included to show us that God providentially started to try to help Abraham to make this break with the whole of his family. His brother died. It would imply abnormally young. And yet it it seems that Abraham did not respond immediately. Because in verse 31, Terah took Abraham his son, and Lot the son of Haran, and Sarai, Abraham's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur to go into the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran, and then Terah dies in Haran. So it's not at all as we would expect that Abraham says, right, I'm leaving you, because he was told to leave his family, his whole father's house. No, he doesn't. Terah takes him. And the emphasis in verse 31 of chapter 11 is very clearly that way, that Abraham and Sarah went forth with them. But they were, as it were, taken by Terah. Now, why did Terah decide to do this? Well, it could be that Abraham had said to him, Oh, yeah, I had a word from God who told me to, uh, to, to get out of here and go to Canaan and separate from you lot. And it could be that his father said, Oh, you're not separating from us. I mean, for them, family was everything. Um, but okay, yeah, let's go to Canaan then. It could have been like that. Or there is some historical evidence that at that time, the Elamites started to attack Ur. So it could have been that they actually had to get up and, and get out of there. And if you work out the genealogies and the ages, etc., from uh, chapter 11 and, and elsewhere, you can work out that Noah, Peleg, and Nahor all died in the same year, when Abraham, or Abraham was about 50 years old while he was still living in Earth. Now, a bit odd that they all died in the same year. I wondered if there was some sort of catastrophe that happened and that made them leave. My point is that Abraham did not do what God said, which was to separate from his family and to, to leave his father's uh, house and country. It was 
circumstance and his own father that made him do that. Now, he gets then to uh, Haran, and they live there for some time. Verse 31 of chapter 11, they dwelt there, they lived there. So he didn't go straight on to Canaan. He stayed there, and then his father dies there in Haran, and then he goes further on to Canaan. But he still takes Lot with him. So he doesn't separate from Lot, as he was asked to. It's emphasized in chapter 13, verses 1 and 5, Lot went with Abraham. And again, in chapter 12, verse 4, here, Lot went with him. It's emphasized that he doesn't break with Lot. But of course, you know how the story goes on, that later on in chapter 13, we're told that there was an argument, basically, between them, and the, or their herdmen anyway, about material things, as usual, and they separated the one from the other. And, in fact, Abraham says to Lot, separate yourself, I pray you, from me. So, Abraham invites Lot to leave him. He doesn't say, look here, I've got to leave you because God told me to. The circumstance was arranged by God so that really Lot, well, decided to leave and they sort of had to break up anyway because they'd got so wealthy, had such big flocks, uh, etc. They just couldn't, uh, the, the, the scrub land where they were just couldn't support such huge flocks travelling together. Now, this is all not a particularly good start, is it? The point is, God was in all this. Don't forget that there's no evidence that God had a prior relationship with Abraham. All we're told in the Bible is that God appeared once to him. There was one word from the Lord. And you could imagine how Abraham would have wondered whether really I should do all this just for the sake of one word I had from God. And it's the same with us, really. When was the last time when you read a verse from the scriptures and thought, wow, that is the word of God, I shall do this. You know, just one word from God can have huge consequence. Now, it is emphasized that actually it was God who brought Abraham out from Ur and into the land of, of Canaan. That is emphasized many times. Acts 7 verse 4 in the RV, God removed him, Abraham, into Canaan. It's emphasized again in Nehemiah 9 verse 7. God brought out Abraham from Ur. You've got the same in Genesis 15, 6 and 7 as well. So it wasn't just that he decided to have faith. <clears throat> God appeared to him and he didn't do what God said to break with his family and with his country. But <clears throat> God wanted that man, and he led him out. So the whole idea that God is sort of there, passive in heaven, and puts a Bible or his word in front of a man and says, you know, I've done everything for you, now if you respond to me, then you're going to get uh, the kingdom, etc. You know, Abraham stalled and started, and God took the initiative and dragged him out. That's well, one meaning of the word brought out, Hebrew word translated brought out, um, that's used in Nehemiah 9 verse 7, that God brought or dragged him out of Ur. Now, <clears throat> this is really grace. And you see it here in chapter 12, verse 4. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. Now straight away, even before you read in chapter 15 about God imputing righteousness, counting him righteous, 
you got it there, actually, in 12.4. He departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. Well, not really. I mean, he was dragged and pulled and circumstance, etc., uh, arranged by God, led to him coming out. Now, he didn't have the courage, it seems to me, to quit with his family as he was asked to do, so that God could make of him a totally new nation. Now, notice also that it was God who chose Abraham. It was not Abraham who chose Yahweh. And normally a man chose in those days a family God when his father or his, the previous head of the family had died. This idea that God chose Abraham is actually quite radical. That he, he did not choose Yahweh as one out of many gods who he happened to choose to be his special God. And this is really what God's done with us. It's a bit like Saul, you know, he's out there looking for lost cattle and, and Zap, you know, he's called to be the king of Israel. And he sort of says, who, me? Yes, you. And it's really the same with us, that it doesn't matter how you were called through loving parents raising you in, in a Sunday school or whatever, or whether you were a totally secular person who encountered the call of the gospel. This is very much God in all our lives. Now, this is grace, absolutely. He obviously found it hard to break with his father. We know from Joshua 24 too that Tirah and them were idolaters. They didn't believe in the true God. Now, if Abraham were used as a uh, sort of Western Semitic kind of word, it would mean something like he's exalted through his relationship to his father. In Akkadian, Abraham would mean he loved the father. So his whole name showed that he was really a, a lover of his father and connected very much to his father. Interestingly, in Isaiah 41 verse 8 and 2 Chronicles 20 verse 7, we read about Abraham as the friend of God or the lover of God. But his name, sort of Abraham, sort of means I love my father. So he had to change, there had to be changed him to be a lover of God. So he clearly loved his father's house. But God changed his name, as you know, later from Abraham to Abraham, putting uh, the central uh, part of the name Yahweh into the middle of Abraham's name. So it becomes Abraham, the exalted father, that he becomes a man in his own right. He becomes the father of many nations and not just uh, and not at all, actually, just one who loved his own father, following and living out parental expectations. Now, of course, this was a radical thing for God to ask anyone in that culture to do, to break with your family. And yet he, he does it. And yet God leads him in all this. Now, I'm not saying that Abraham was completely uh, passive to all this, because clearly there was some faith. But my point is that when you read in Hebrews 11, verse 8, for example, when Abraham was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, he obeyed. Well, yes, he uh, sort of intended to obey, I don't doubt, but it was really a case of him being dragged out of there by God and almost dragged into obedience. 
This idea of imputed righteousness, of God being so generous, really, in how he talks about Abraham. Of course, Paul explains in, in Romans that this whole idea of imputed righteousness is really at the, at the core of the gospel. And it's not just that occasionally we think, oh yeah, God looks at me uh, as if I'm Jesus, as if I'm perfect. This is something that happens day after day hour by hour, minute by minute, that we are in that status with God. And this is pure grace. This is the way love works, to count someone as uh, better than they are, as perfect, as it were, in your eyes. And this is what God does to his people. And especially, as we know, as Paul develops the argument from Abraham, this is what happens to us when we're in Christ. Now, practically... I think what that means is that at the very least, we should be positive in the way that we look upon other people. Because as you get older particularly, you become more cynical. Well, she said that, but what she really meant was obviously this. They did that, but actually it was because they wanted so-and-so. He said that, but he also said so-and-so. We're very cynical and sceptical, both of, of ourselves and particularly of, of others. Whereas there is here a breath of fresh air for human relationships and for our own thinking. That if God looked so positively upon Abraham and spoke so positively about him, even here in Genesis 12 verse 4, that he departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, well, what about our response to that? We should believe not only that we are counted righteous, but so are all our brethren. Now, to speak well of others is actually quite a, an art form. It requires a specific effort to, to do that, because it's, it does not come naturally to anybody. And I would say that that should be the hallmark, or one of the hallmarks, of a true Christian, of someone who is truly in Christ and believes in all this. You can see it in how Jesus spoke to the general public and the Pharisees about the disciples. He's very positive about them. And yet when he's with them, he's actually quite tough with them. You see it again in God's attitude to Job. He's pretty tough when he talks to Job. And yet when he talks to the friends in chapter 42 of Job, he, he says, no, no, Job was great. You know, He spoke about me that which was right. Now, this is not a call to naivety. This is not the same as naivety. This is not the same as saying, oh yeah, well I didn't see you this time. When you, you have seen it, you know, the, the error. This is not the same. We all find that irritating when people are willfully naive. And it, this is not a call to naivety because God is not naive at all. He sees and knows all things and is particularly sensitive, in fact, to human sin and failure. So I think that what we're being taught here is that we should not be naive, but be positive about others because God has been so positive about us. There are people, and in fact all of us, in some ways at some times, who are exposed to continual negative speak about themselves. It could be from an unsupportive partner, it could be from their kids, it could be from their parents, from the people they work with, from their ecclesia, from their church, whatever. 
And the echoes of what people have said about us negatively in the past tend to carry on down the years and even the decades. Now, I submit that only in a true belief in imputed righteousness that God looks at me with such joy because I'm in Christ and he thinks that I'm great, although I'm not. Uh, But that is, I think, the only lasting motivation that there can be to get out of the, the huge psychological damage that all that negative speak causes. Now, let's face it, we're living in the Internet generation and with things like Facebook and email and social networking and all this kind of stuff and photos being posted all over the place of you and, you know, your kids or your parents or whatever. We've all become, you may say, ah, not me, but we have, we've all become dangerously concerned with our image. This is actually uh, part and parcel of the problem of thinking negatively about yourself. It doesn't matter what you look like in a picture. It doesn't matter what people think about you, good or bad. The bottom line is what God thinks of you. And if you are in Christ, then he rejoices over you with singing. He really does. Now, we go on in this chapter to have the incident of of Abraham going down into Egypt and lying about his wife, which is really also a lack of faith in that basic promise in verse 2 of chapter 12, that I will make of you a great nation, even though he did not have children at that time. We're told in 11 verse 30, Sarah was barren, she had no child. Now, you know, he really should have believed that somehow through her he would have, he would become a great nation. But he seems to have failed in that. And actually later on, when the whole thing repeats again with lying to kings about your, about his wife in chapter 20, he says something really odd. It's in chapter 20 verse 13. When he sort of explains to Abimelech about the situation, and he says, Elohim, and you can translate that, and I think the context demands it, the gods. The gods cause me to wander from my father's house. And the idea of wander is Hebrew word ta'ar, that's translated wander in 20 verse 13. The gods, or God, Elohim, cause me to wander from my father's house. Um, that word definitely has the idea of wandering aimlessly. And it's even used in Isaiah 53 verse 6 about sinning. It's not really, I don't think, that trying to sort out the real, let's say, tone of the Hebrew, I don't think is a very nice thing for him to say. As if, yeah, look here, I'm on, a, I'm on this journey because my, the gods or God or whoever made me to wander from my father's house. Um, I'm sort of adrift in this world because kind of the gods or God made me do it. And I wonder if God kind of recognized Abraham's failure in that by instructing his people in Deuteronomy 26 verse 5 to confess every year an Aramean, or a Syrian, the AV says, an Aramean gone astray was my father as if they were to recognize all the time the spiritual weakness of Abraham at the start. The point is that he, out of weakness, was made strong. And so this is what I think we also just need to constantly be be aware of, that 
out of weakness we are made strong. And you see it with Abraham, and you really see it in your own life as you start to look back. Now, you not only should see that in our own lives, but more relevantly, I think, in the lives of others. We see weakness of faith. We see lack of commitment. We see a failure to respond, really, to what the promises of God imply in other people. And we're very discouraged. But don't forget all the time that you have not seen the end of that person's journey. They are being led, or God is trying to lead them, on a journey, like he did with Abraham, to a genuine faith. He's trying to get all of us to individuate, to separate from parental influence, parental expectation, and to be our own person. Now, it took Abraham decades to get there. Really, I mean, I'll say his early decades, not years, not months, but decades, were pretty weak. Now, if that was Abraham, the father of the faithful, who's, in a sense, set up as the role model for all of us, then surely it's going to be the case with you, with me, with everybody that you know. And yet it is that lack of patience, I would say, with others' spiritual weakness and immaturity which is a big reason for so much division and for so much disillusion with the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ, etc. And people leave and walk away because of that. But spiritual weakness and immaturity, according to what we're seeing here in Abraham, is to absolutely be expected. That is not to justify it, but it is to be expected. It is there in all of us, and the more you look at your own life, you will see it is in you. So then, God led him on, did he not? And this is what God is doing in in our lives. Now, talking about division, um, just vaguely sort of uh, going off maybe at a tangent, but that argument between Lot and Abraham, or their herdmen anyway, was, was very sad, really, that on a human level, they shouldn't have had that division. And yet you see how God worked through it. He worked through that division to help Abraham individuate, to help Abraham finally be obedient to the call that he had back in Ur, here in chapter 12, verse 1, to get away from his kindred and his father's house. Now, the final point I want to leave with you is from chapter 12, verse 3. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you, and you shall be a blessing. The two things are related. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. It's not possible to, to have the blessings of God and not bless other people with them. This is not simply a call to preaching, you know, God gave us the, uh, the gospel, so we must share it with others. I mean, it is that. But let's think a bit more about this blessing. Well, in Acts 3, we have the blessing defined categorically. Having quoted the promises to Abraham about blessing in his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Peter says in Acts 3 at the end there, 25, I think 26, God sent Jesus to bless you in, and here's the definition of blessing, to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So the blessing, as defined by Peter, is forgiveness, but not only forgiveness, it is the turning away 
of us from our sin. You see, there's two different things there. There's turning somebody away from their sin and actually forgiving them. So I think that the blessing is clearly defined there as being turned away from sin, being forgiven. Uh, and of course, we know from the rest of Genesis, uh, the promises recorded in Genesis, that the blessing was also of the eternal inheritance of the earth. So you can understand why God says, I will bless you, because God turned Abraham away from his iniquity. He pulled him out of Ur when he wasn't strong enough really to go. He pulled him out of Haran. He pulled him out of um, the relationship with Lot so that he would separate as he had commanded him from his kindred and his father's house. And he clearly forgave him and gave him the, the hope of the kingdom. Now, that's what God has done to you and me. And that is what we are to do for others. How do we bless others? Turning them away from their iniquity. How do you do that? Having coffees with people, chatting with them by email, and yeah, Facebook or whatever you're into. Um, contact with people, talking with people, by your example, by raising issues in an appropriate way. I'm not just talking about coffee and the weather. Uh, and, and the government and this used to be a decent country and all, you know, all the sort of stuff that pe people talk about um, but actually having spiritual relevant conversation consciously thinking how could I help this brother or, or sister uh, and of course mediating forgiveness to others God's forgiveness to others uh, through sharing his word with them uh, not just to unbelievers, but to believers who seem to doubt that really it is all true for me. And of course, giving them who believe and those who do not believe the hope of the eternal blessing of God's kingdom. But my point is that all this that Abraham did really in his life had a terribly shaky start, very shaky. And it was grace that led him out and it was grace that led him through. And that's going on in the lives of all the people that you find so irritating, so immature. And it's going on in your own life.